Hello and welcome to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer, a series featuring conversations with experts to share recent market developments, key insights and strategic inputs from around the globe. In each episode, we cut through the noise to bring practical advice and macro research on today's shifting economic and market landscape. Please listen to the important legal information at the end of this podcast. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Mark Matthews, Head of Research Asia at Bank Julius Baer, coming to you from Singapore. This podcast is all about India. And so I'm joined in Bombay by Rupan Rajguru, Head of Equity Investment Strategy at Julius Baer India. Hi, Mark. Hello, everyone. Hello, Rupan. Before we talk about India going forward, let me briefly set the tone by looking into the past. Over the last 30 years, many of Asia's economies witnessed great growth. Not all of them, mind you. In dollar terms, Japan's economy is only 40% larger than it was then. Taiwan's economy is three times larger. South Korea's grew by four and a half times. Then it starts to get more interesting. Singapore's economy is seven times larger than it was in 1993. Indonesia's is nine times larger. Then we come to India. India went from being a $280 billion economy in 1993 to a $3.2 trillion economy this year. That's an increase of 10 times. That's impressive. The states of Madhya Pradesh, Uttar Pradesh, Tamil Nadu, Gujarat, Karnataka each have larger GDPs today than all of India was back then. But China's growth is the most impressive of all, not just in Asia, in fact, in the world. No other country's economy has grown by as much as China over the last 30 years, an increase of 40 times. No other country's economy has grown by that much. Now, what's surprising when it comes to the changes of the sizes of these countries' economies is when we compare them to the returns in their stock markets over the same period. Now, what's surprising is when we compare the changes in the size of those countries' economies that I just mentioned to the returns of their stock markets over the same period. Well, not all of them are surprising. $100 invested in Japan's Nikkei in 1993 would be $190 today. I guess that makes sense. It's been such a low-growth economy. But South Korea, that I mentioned earlier, had an economy that grew by four and a half times since 1993. If you put $100 into its stock market back then, it would be only worth $310 today. Surprisingly small. Singapore, that I said had an economy that grew by seven times over that period, would have had a return about the same, $100 to $310. Not very good when you consider $100 in a 10-year treasury would be worth $400 today. The Indonesian and mainland Chinese stock markets also didn't do so well. $100 in 1993 would be $460 today in both of them. Taiwan was good. $100 became $820. So I guess what I'm trying to say is they're kind of all over the place. And none of the ones I mentioned comes close to matching the S&P 500 index where $100 invested in 1993 would be $1,700 today. But there's actually one that I have yet to mention. One Asian market did match the S&P. $100 invested in India's Nifty 50 index in 1993 would be worth $1,600 today. In fact, only two other stock markets in the world came close to matching the S&P over that period of time. Of course, different starting dates will show us different things. But over most periods, India comes out ahead. Over the last 20 years, it returned 14% per year. 
Over the last 10 years, it returned 9% per year. Over the last five years, it returned 8% per year. Those are good returns by any measure, but they're doubly impressive when you consider the rupee has steadily lost value. It's depreciated by 60% versus the dollar since 1993, which means average annual local currency returns were in the mid-teens. So Rupin, what I'd like to ask you is why did that happen? I don't mean so much the other Asian countries, their stock markets, but why did Indian stocks do so well? Mark, I must say it's pretty interesting observation from your side. And one of the things which you said that over the last 10 years, the Indian stock returned 9% per year. So let me give you a few data points to illustrate what has changed between 2013 and today. Number one, the mutual fund investments in India has gone up five times. That is, you know, the domestic mutual fund holdings in the Indian stock market is up 5x. The value of digital transactions has gone up from almost nothing to over three quarters of the GDP. The foreign direct investment, FDI, which was 20 odd billion dollars 10 years ago, will be around 60 odd billion dollars for this year. And it touched high of $85 billion in calendar year 21. Then the corporate tax rate has fallen from 34% to 22%. And yet the tax collections have risen 150% over the same period. The corporate debt levels have fallen significantly. And today the corporate leverage to GDP probably is one of the lowest in the last couple of decades. The real estate prices as well as the volumes in India are picking up. Inflation, which was around 9-10% a decade ago, is now 4.7% today as we speak. The amount of highways have doubled. And also the direct benefit transfers, that is the subsidies to the poor, which was probably a billion dollar per annum 10 years back, is now upwards of $32 billion per annum as we speak today. I know these are all pretty random statistics, but I'm using them to illustrate the fact that important foundations have been put in place for what we suspect will be even better 10 years from now than what it was in the past 10 years. You know, Rupin, when I look at the rest of the world, I can't think of many countries I would say the same thing about, that the next 10 years will be even better than the last 10 years. I can't say that about China. I can't say that for Europe. I'm not even sure about the United States. There are some countries I do think will be good, Nigeria, Kenya, Saudi Arabia, Ukraine, here in Asia, I'd say the Philippines, Indonesia, Vietnam, but all of those countries have small financial markets. They're illiquid. They're not easy to invest in. India is a big and liquid market. But Rupin, I want to go back to a few of the things you mentioned, because if they're all foundations for the future, we should talk about some of them in more detail. And maybe we could start with the digital transactions. You said that they're now three quarters of GDP. Can you tell us more about the digital infrastructure in India? Absolutely, Mark. India's digital transformation journey started in 2010 with the introduction of what we call here the Aadhaar card, which is nothing but the unique digital identification. And I must say this laid the foundation for India 2.0, that is digital India. The World Bank had estimated that India will take around 45 years for complete financial inclusion, which means 90% penetration. Incidentally, we achieved that in 2018, thanks to Aadhaar. 
So just let me give you some perspective. The current incumbent government launched the Jandhan program where in 2014 to accelerate the financial inclusion as at that point of time bulk of Indians were unbanked. It started after eKYC, which is nothing but electronic KYC was introduced and wherein the cost, the KYC cost for drastically reduced from $25 to as low as 15 cents. And not only that, it significantly cut the KYC time to practically two minutes, you know, versus a week earlier. So with eKYC, the banks opened several hundred million accounts very quickly. And this became the basis for the direct benefit transfer. And as we mentioned earlier, till date, we have more than 300 billion worth of money have been transferred into people's bank account via DBT. Additionally, you know, eKYC really helped companies, say like Reliance Geo, which is now the largest telecom company, and also some of the discount brokers to hyperscale. You know, it enabled like Geo to issue 1 million SIM card per day when it launched. So in fact, in first six months, they issued the telecom connection to almost 100 million customers within six months and which led to significant fall in the cost of data and also led to phenomenal expansion of smartphone market in India. And finally, in 2016, the NPCI, which is the National Payment Corporation of India, launched the platform called UPI, which is United Payment Interface. It is digital first interoperable peer-to-peer four-party payment system. Sending money on a real-time basis is as simple and as easy as sending an email. You can transfer money from any bank account to any bank account using any customer app. So you don't have to have a similar app on both sides. So it is a unique innovation which is not done anywhere in the world. And come demonetization in November 2016, this accelerated the entire adoption of digital payments in the country. And India migrated from being a cash economy to a digital economy. So the UPI is fast, it's simple, it's real-time, and very important, it is free. And last month, we processed roughly $200 billion worth of transactions via the UPI and the number of transactions were 9 billion. So that gives you the idea about the scale in which we are working in the digital ecosystem. And just to sum up, all these things are popularly called the India stack, which is nothing but a set of open source APIs that allows governments, businesses, startups and developers to utilize the unique digital infrastructure to solve India's hard problem, one towards identity, that is by way of Aadhaar, payment, that is by way of UPI. And now the next frontier is e-commerce, which is through ONDC, which is open network for digital commerce, and also solving the problem of credit by way of account aggregators. You know, Mark, I can go on this for next one hour, but in the interest of time, I would like to just say that India is now digitally future ready, and that paves way for a strong structural growth for many years to come. Thanks, Rupin. You mentioned the amount of highways has doubled. I see them with my own eyes when I go there and I use them. My sense is what happened is that the digital infrastructure you just described 
caused the small and medium-sized enterprises, which, by the way, are the backbone of the economy, they're a third of GDP, to be dragged, kicking and screaming into the official economy. And what I mean by that is that for the first time ever, they had to pay tax starting around six years ago. With the digitalization of the economy, that was now possible. And so with tax collections at record highs, the government has the money to spend on physical infrastructure that it didn't have before to build railways, highways, ports, airports. We can already see the results. As a Canadian group, and I'm embarrassed to say this, but I'll say it anyway, because I stood in the security queue at Toronto Airport. It took me two hours to get through that queue a few weeks ago. And I can vouch that Bombay Airport is much smoother and much nicer than Toronto Airport is. Another thing. I won't uh, belabor our listener by describing the changes in the global supply chain reallocation. I'm sure they are uh, very much familiar with that. But without this physical infrastructure, India couldn't have been a part of the rejigging of the global supply chains. Now it is. Close to trillion dollar was spent on production related investment last year. Services exports in the first six months of this year were 18% higher than they were in the first six months of last year. Services imports rose just 4% over the same period. And one, the long-term implication of this is that the fiscal and the current account deficit, that's famous twin deficits, probably might now become a thing of the past. And also twin deficits are the reasons why large emerging markets tends to have currencies that go down. If over time India's manufactured exports and tax collection increase enough, I don't want to say that for sure, but a a twin surplus is something that could happen and that should intuitively mean a lot of less pressure on the Indian currency. Rupin, my understanding is the government's offering incentives with its so-called production-linked incentive scheme to boost manufacturing, 14 sectors, from mobile phones to automobiles, electronic products, and batteries, and that would help wean India off some high-end manufactured imports. That's also good for the current account. And by the way, a lot of the investment into those sectors is from multinational companies like Apple and Tesla semiconductor manufacturers until recently that had almost no operations or none at all in India. They can see the benefits of exporting, but it goes without saying, for many of them, India has the potential to be one of their largest markets too. For some who came early, it already is. Maruti Suzuki, Suzuki's Indian subsidiary, sells more cars in India than Suzuki sells in the rest of the world. So it shouldn't be surprising that Apple apparently targets raising India's share of its global production from 7% to 25%. Yes, Mark, you are absolutely right. The clear focus of this government is to boost the manufacturing sector by targeting A, import substitution, and also B, making India as an export hub for a lot of the MNCs which you mentioned. So that's clearly the agenda, and I think we are very much on track for that, and I think the production-linked incentives are steps in that direction. Also, we don't want to sound like India is some kind of, you know, Shangri-La, but one thing mentioning here is what happened in the banking sector. Of course, bad things do happen, but what has happened is that in last 10 years, clearly the banking system in India has cleaned up 
a lot of their non-performing assets which were there you know from the previous decade and they have also capitalized themselves to such an extent that probably now indian banks would be the most capitalized uh, banks in the entire emerging market pack plus there were new set of regulations like insolvency and bankruptcy code and also the real estate regulations rera which had its own impact overall positive on the banking sector so as we speak today indian banks have excess capital on their balance sheet and excess provisioning on their pnl now this mark i must tell you it's a potent combination for a new credit cycle and in fact i would say that credit cycle is already underway last year the overall credit growth in india was upwards of you know 15 to 16% and which is much higher than the nominal you know gdp growth of the country and what i believe that this credit cycle has just begun and typically the cycle lasts for many more years and from a corporate side the corporates as i mentioned earlier are underlevered and they are also now going to start to re-leverage so net net this can be a good a potent credit cycle in india which we have just witnessed and uh, probably it, this might continue for at least next 3 or 2 to 3 years from here on Rupin, let's finish with the stock market. Historically, India's stock market was very reliant on foreign capital. So, for example, it fell 60% in dollars in 2008, much more than the S&P's 38% fall. Not because there was any crisis in India back then, but because foreigners owned a lot of it, and when their value at risk measures all went up, they de-risked in emerging markets first as the global financial crisis unfolded. But last year, even though the S&P fell 19%, India was only down 6% in dollar terms it was actually up 2% in rupee terms because even though foreigners sold a lot of it locals bought it and locals are in fact a larger force now than foreign investors that's right mark i think the one important shift which has happened in last decade and is the domestic institutional flows have significantly gone up and i think one structural element here is the systematic investment plan or sips as they are popularly called here so as this name suggests these are defined contribution plan or these are systematic investments by individuals who allocate certain amount of money every month into the equity markets via their mutual fund routes this big domestic investor base is bound to grow as the middle class gets bigger one thing you would notice that if you go to india and you are a regular visitor here and you know, i think the kind of billboards on the highways state railway stations and even on the airports are all advertising about the domestic mutual funds as this middle class develops an equity culture which is in it is in the process it would be similar to what happened back in the united states which has a big equity culture and eventually the companies will become better run as the middle class will insist on it So just to sum up you know last few years the captive flow into the Indian markets is close to 30 to 35 billion dollars it is by way of systematic investment plans the provident fund money the insurance company money which we believe is not only sticky but will steadily grow as the equity culture deepens further in the country this domestic flow serves as the cushion against the fpi outflows and hence as you mentioned earlier during previous crisis the indian stock markets fell much more when there were fpi outflows 
But last calendar year, there was a huge outflow from the foreign portfolio investors, but the Indian equity market was very stable thanks to the domestic money. And I would say inherently the volatility of the Indian markets have come down because of this big pool of domestic money, which was not available earlier and which is now there. And that's the new change which has happened. But one thing I'm sure it's often gets mentioned is the price. The Nifty 50 index, as you mentioned before, Mark, you know, it trades at almost 20 times the forward price to earnings ratio. And if I were to compare that with a lot of other markets, especially the emerging market index, you know, which is at around 13 to 14 times. So it is at a premium to those you know, valuations. So what are your thoughts on that, Mark? Yes, Rupin, it's often said that Indian stocks are expensive. Well, it's because they are. In my entire career, I can only remember one time they weren't. It was the bottom of the global financial crisis in January 2009. But the way I see it, good things cost money. If we want them, we should be prepared to pay for them. It's the same anywhere in the world. And India has a higher return on equity than the broad emerging markets asset class. It's 15% compared to 11%. I agree, Mark. And if we were to zoom out and also see that the Indian corporates are now in cusp of a new earning cycle. In fact, in last three years, the profitability of top 500 corporates in India has doubled from 60 odd billion dollars to 130 billion dollars. And I would say that the earnings flywheel of India Inc. is now firmly set into motion. And over the next three to four years, as at least we believe that the overall profitability growth would be higher than the nominal GDP growth of the country, which itself will grow in early double digits. And beyond that, you know, Mark, the real reason it's worth paying more. It is a country wherein the population is big, it is young, the average age is 29, and in 10 years, will still be relatively young at 32. The working population surpassed the dependent age population in size five years ago, and probably it will peak after another 10 years. So by that time, it will be almost a billion people. And this favorable demographic is clearly will be the bedrock for the India and the overall productivity gains for the country. In fact, Ernst Young has forecast that the per capita income, which is 2600 US dollar now, will rise to almost $3,700 in next five years. And thereafter, there'll be another increase of 40%. And then by 2032, they estimate it would be closer to $4,800. And it keeps going up. And according to them, by 2048, it would be closer to $15,000. And now really, I don't know whether the last part is going to happen because that's too far into the future to predict. But I can clearly see the it going up from $2,600 to $4,800 in next 10 years. I believe we are in that tipping point because once the basic necessity is met, incremental per capita is spent on discretionary items. And hence, we are in in middle of a big consumer discretionary boom in India for the next 10 years. Because higher disposable income will mean higher spending. And that is something which we have seen various countries like the US and China also witness the same. And we are in that cusp uh, as we speak, uh, Mark. Thank you, Rupan. 
I'll leave the listeners listening to us with one statistic. The country that will add the most to world GDP over the next decade is India. Admittedly, the statistics I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast suggest there's no correlation between GDP growth and stock markets here in Asia. But I think in the case of India, there is. Because the government makes no bones about being unabashedly pro-business and pro-capitalism. There's no fear of the government in the private sector. The only thing it fears is not being able to survive in such a Darwinian economy where it's survival of the fittest. And here's one other final thought. Earlier this year, YouTube, the world's biggest video-sharing platform, second biggest social media platform, named Neil Moen as its new CEO. He's actually born and raised in the United States, as was Vasant Narsiman, the CEO of Novartis, as was Anjali Sud, the CEO of Vimeo. Jayshree Ulal, the CEO of Artista, was born in London. But there are over 20 other people of Indian origin who were born and raised in India who are CEOs of some of the most important companies in the world, in technology, companies like Alphabet and Microsoft, IBM, Micron, Adobe. But there's also companies like Deloitte, Ogilvy, Starbucks, FedEx, Chanel, that are run by CEOs of Indian origin. And I don't know how to say it, but to me, this is very positive. It might sound like brain drain, but in a country of 1.4 billion people, there's still plenty of brain cells left. And maybe it's because getting things done in India often involves problem solving. If you've ever tried to buy a ticket in a train station there, I'm sure you know that. So they're naturally good at problem solving. They even have a word for it in Hindi, don't they, Rupan? Jugat literally means a hack, a non-conventional innovation. Well, I'll pass it over to Rupan for the final word. Over to you, Rupan. Thanks, Mark. And as you mentioned, just to add the latest feather in the India's cap is that India became the first country to land their spaceship on the south pole of moon and clearly demonstrating our leadership in the space science and technology. So that is broadly it from our side. This is Rupen Rajguru and Mark Matthews signing off for now. We'll speak with you again soon. Goodbye. You have been listening to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. To learn more about Julius Baer, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at www.juliusbear.com. We will be back with a brand new episode soon. This is a podcast disclaimer. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast constitute marketing material and are not the result of independent financial or investment research. The podcast content is intended for information purposes only and does not constitute an offer, a recommendation or an invitation by or on behalf of Julius Baer to buy or sell any securities, security-based derivatives or other products or to participate in any particular trading strategy in any jurisdiction. Julius Baer does not accept liability for any loss arising from the use of the podcast content. Please refer to www.juliusbear.com forward slash legal forward slash podcasts for further important legal information.